This morning's scripture reading will be from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom who promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of, whom, of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, say that, that last verse with me again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's say that again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to be looking at uh, the first 13 verses of uh, James chapter 2. Uh, just by uh, a show of hands, how many of you now have the church app on your phone? You know, we sort of felt this Wi-Fi it just kind of died you know, for a couple of minutes at the beginning of the assembly. So we, we were wondering if a lot of folk uh, had downloaded it. How, how many of you have a smartphone uh, or an iPhone? And how many of you have uh, the other kinds? Oh, so we're, we're kind of 50-50, not, not quite, but 50-50. That's a good thing. Uh, open your Bibles up to, uh, to James chapter 2. Just a reminder that uh, tonight, uh, you may have seen this in the, in the bulletin, uh, this thing called Goofy Golf. That is an intergenerational uh, church event that uh, Cody has put together, our youth minister has put together with uh, not only our, our kiddos, but with a lot of you. And it's, it's going to be a fun time tonight. Let's be praying that those relationships that, uh, that are not just peer-to-peer, but are intergenerational, older folk with younger folk and younger folk with middle-aged folk uh, like myself, uh, that, that that really strengthens and solidifies over the years because we are a church family, amen? And it's really important that, that we, we mix intergenerationally like that. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into this text that, uh, that Jeff re- just read for us. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this day of life, and in this day of life, we want to show the life that you have given us, that it is true life, it's abundant life, it is a, it is a life that that helps us to 
to, to live in this world in, in the curse of the thorns and the thistles in such a way, Father, that, that we flourish. And that that is a flourishing that can be observed. And so we pray, Father, that we take every word that, that James writes to us in this letter about what disciples of Jesus look like and how they're to live in a world like this, that we take it seriously, that we embrace it, that we allow it to be that word that is planted in us that takes root in our hearts and our souls and grows and then begins to blossom. And this is why we ask again, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is our prayer, our, our request, our, our, our asking in this moment. In the name of Jesus, amen. When you look up here at the screen, do you recognize what this is? It's, it's a plinth, which is a, a just kind of an architectural carpentry uh, term for a, a special kind of um, a wood molding that you find in, in homes. And this particular one belonged to a guy by the name of Mike Meister who lives in Granby, Massachusetts. This plant was something that had been in his attic for, for years and years and years and years. And the story goes uh, that he had this great, great uncle who was studying to be a lawyer in Washington, D.C. He was walking uh, down the Pennsylvania Avenue. He was studying at Georgetown or George Washington University, one of the, the, the two big law schools in D.C., when he happened to see this on the lawn and just decided, uh, you know, he'd pick it up and take it home. And that he did, and it had been passed for, you know, since... 1902 is when he was walking down the street. It had been passed from family member to family member to family member since 1902. It had been in the family for over 100 years. And finally, Mike Meister's up in his attic. He sees the thing. He doesn't have a clue as to what it is. And he decides it's time to toss it out. Well, his brother-in-law gets a hold of him and says, I don't know. I know it's been around a long time. I don't have a clue as to what it is. But it might be one of those things that you need to have it checked out by an expert. Why don't you see if it's worth anything? And that he did. And it turns out that it was found in a very, very special room in a special house in Washington, D.C. You can see the circle down here at the bottom. That plinth that Mike Meisner has is that plinth right there found in one of the rooms of the White House. And it had been a part of the White House since the rebuilding of the White House when it had burned down in the War of 1812. So now we fast forward to 1902. Teddy Roosevelt has become president because McKinley's been assassinated and he decides that he wants to return the White House to its federalist uh, architectural roots and decides to get rid of all of the vestiges of Victorianism inside of the White House. And, and in the day, you know, they didn't have those gigantic, you know, 40-foot dumpsters out there. So they just tossed stuff out onto the lawn. Mike Meister's uh, great-great-uncle is walking down the street, walks right up on the lawn of the White House, sees this thing, he knows it's trash, and takes it home. And it was nearly thrown away. His brother-in-law said, hey, you need to find out how much it's worth. He did, found out exactly what it was. It went to auction last fall, sold for $150,000. Nearly tossed it out. The moral, I think, of the story is this. You can be around something for a long time and not have a clue as to what it is or what it's worth. I think our church and our culture today is a lot like that. There are a lot of people that are walking around in our neighborhoods and, and we interact with on a daily basis that are around the church and they sort of know what the church is, but they don't have a clue as to what the church really is and they don't have a clue to its worth. 
And I think that that brings up a really interesting question. And the question is this, why is there a church at all? When you think about it, why, why in the world is there a church? Well, for a lot of us who have grown up in the church and those that have been church members for a long time and have really been blessed by the church, the answer to that is not only you know, fairly simple, but there are a lot of them. I mean, the church is the place where people come into contact with the gospel. The church is the place where people are able to grow in the faith and maintain the faith and to learn how to, how to fellowship with one another and how to love and to be loved and to serve and to be served and, 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 to, and to be the people of God. It's the, pla- the church is the place where God is worshipped in His creation, a creation that is eliminating Him. But there is, as, as good as all of those reasons are, there is one reason I want to look at this morning Uh, out of the book of James, and it's this. One big reason that the church exists is this. The church exists to demonstrate God's work in the lives of people. The church exists to demonstrate God at work in the lives of people. That if you have questions about God, you're wondering about God, that you have some, 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 some ideas about God that you want to check it out, one of the things that James is going to really want people to do is to look at the church and to see God at work in the lives of people and how people are being changed and transformed and they begin to flourish and they begin to grow and they begin to look like the human beings that they were always intended to be. Now that's the importance of James's book, uh, his, his letter to us. James helps us to see what a disciple looks like. Well, the first thing we looked at, we're in the third lesson. First lesson, James helps people to see what disciples of Jesus where the gospel has impacted them, they are the recipients of grace, they believe in the cross, they've committed themselves to God, they delight in God. When the trials come, this is what a disciple looks like. A disciple is not stoic, but at the same time, uh, a disciple of Jesus is not an emotional train wreck when it comes to the trials. A disciple is realistic about the pain and the suffering and the grief, but approaches that trial and that tough time and that adversity with this kind of vertical spirit that regardless of of how painful the experience is, there is this knowledge that God can turn that evil against itself in your life and turn you into a beauty, to turn you into a gem. Last week, we saw the place that God's Word has in all of this. We saw how the disciple has a very special relationship with the Word of God. That it's that Word that gives new birth, and it is that new, that, that new birth and the word, that, uh, the word of God that plays a part in that that turns you into a first fruit, which means, it's an agricultural term, we talked about this last week, that first fruit means that you're dedicated to God, which means that you have this relationship with God and with God's Word in which, like David, you want to delight in it, you want to meditate on it, you want that Word to, to, to be spoken to you because of this new birth, you want God to speak to you. But at the same time, the Word also has a special relationship with you. James says that Word is planted in you, which is another agricultural term. And you know what happens when you plant seeds? That seed takes root and then it grows and then it begins to blossom. The Word changes you. The Word changes you. And that's that relationship that the Word has with you, that when you accept that Word and you, you have that Word planted in your heart, then the Word of God takes root in your soul and it begins to grow and to grow and to grow. And finally you begin to bear fruit and you blossom and you flourish and you, all of a sudden you notice that you're breaking out of old cycles and old habits and, and, and old addictions and, and old ways of thinking and responding and reacting to different things. You begin to be a different individual. 
Now, this morning, we want to continue sort of that trajectory with what does the church look like and how are people supposed to interact with the world and with each other. This morning, we're going to look at what James has to teach us about when when people look at our church and see the diversity of our congregation, how is it that all of these people from different backgrounds are able to hang with each other and to love each other and to grow old with each other and support each other in the good times and the bad times? Two initial considerations, though, first, as before we get into this idea of fellowship and partiality and discrimination, two initial considerations. To whom is James writing? To what is the context here? Well, uh, you know, about the time that James was written and scholars begin to look at it, they begin to say, you know what James is doing? He's looking at the assembly like we have this morning. He's looking at, at the church when it's getting together on Sunday mornings, first day of the week, Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and what does the church, you know, how is the church supposed to behave and how are they supposed to relate to one another when there's so much diversity in their worship assembly? The, the latest scholarship leans more in the direction of this is not a, an assembly of worship. It's an assembly in which there's sort of a church trial going on. Somebody has done something that's been upsetting to somebody else, and the church has come together. And the, the, the terminology of judge and judgment and all of this uh, sort of have caused them to lean this way. My own personal thought is that it's really neither. It, it's both and. It, it's not just the assembly and, and these special meetings, but it, it's really the church together at all times. If you look at verse 2... James talks about this meeting, and it's not the typical word that you would find for church, which is the word ecclesia. It is another word. It's synagogain, which sounds like the word synagogue. And you'll remember what the synagogue was. James is a Hebrew writer. He's living in Jerusalem. He has his Hebrew background, and in his mind, the, the, suna, the, uh, the synagogue has a, a, a specific image in his mind. The synagogue appeared while the people were out in exile. And it was a way for the people in a foreign land. They were strangers. They were aliens in this foreign land. They were in a different culture. They were among people who spoke a different language. They were among people who did not believe in one God but many gods. And the synagogue was a place not only where they would come together and find emotional support, but theologically they would come together and, and what, uh, what God's Word, what Torah taught about life and about uh, interactions with one another and kosher kitchens and, and what... You know what the uh, worship was supposed to look like. All of that was taught, and so I think what James is writing here is is not meant for a specific application, like a church service or a meeting, but it's for any time that two or more disciples come together and Jesus is in their midst. That what he's writing applies to us as a body, wherever it might be found, at whatever time of the day and whatever day of the week. He's writing about how we live with each other. The second consideration is this. Think about this. This really, To me, this is very interesting. Who is this James who is writing this? He's the half-brother of Jesus. Which means something more than, okay, we got the author. What it means is this is a fellow that grew up with Jesus, half-brother. And what happens when brothers live together? I should know I'm the oldest of three boys, no girl, not a, not a, not a, not a, not a, a female chromosome in my family just about. I mean, it just, what does it mean that James grew up with Jesus as his half-brother? It means that he ate with Jesus and he listened to Jesus, he worked with Jesus, and because they would pile all of the kids into one bed, he probably slept with his older brother, half-brother, Jesus. 
And he probably annoyed his half-brother, Jesus, from time to time. And guess what? He saw how the Christ lived in a family. Not just what a family with the Christ in it looked like, but he saw how the Christ reacted to everything that happened in his family while he was growing up. So he is writing with personal knowledge. He is writing with personal memories. Thinking back about how Jesus treated different things as he was growing up as a half-brother to the Messiah. And so there's some special, I think there's some special connection in these words for James and for us. And there are three things that he helps us to see in this text. There are a lot more than that. We only have time for three. The first one is, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be in this community today and be all that we can be as the body of Christ, beautiful as a bride, fruitful as vine in the branches and all of that, then we have to remember that as a disciple of Jesus, we are overcoming fallen human nature. You've heard me talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn from time to time, uh, one of my favorite writers and, and has taught me so much about uh, good and evil in the world. Uh, he was one of the most prominent writers on these subjects in the 20th century. A little background, if you don't know the name Solzhenitsyn, you know that he's not from around here. He grew up in the Soviet Union when God had been completely eliminated. God had been eliminated. And because of that, as a member of the Soviet Union, a citizen of the Soviet Union, he experienced what men become and what men do when all of the motivations to do good, like a belief in God, is removed. The world becomes less merciful and less merciful and less merciful. The world becomes more mean and more mean and more mean. And even though Solzhenitsyn was a citizen, he found himself in the gulag. He found himself in a place of, of, of unjust suffering. Some years ago, in Eternity Magazine, there was an interview, and he's, uh, Solzhenitsyn's quoted by Erickson, who wrote the article. And I want to read a portion for you. It's up here on the screen. And this, this is a quote from Solzhenitsyn. He says, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men had forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause for the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. The world is not a merciful place. And in chapter 2, James describes a, a hypothetical situation to, to describe a situation that is just deplorable to him. It's just odious to him. There's a gathering of the church for some reason. God's people are together and in walks this affluent man, you can tell so by the ring and the fine clothing that he wears. And here's this affluent man who is at the center of his own universe. He's at the center of his culture. He's at the center of, 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 of his society and probably of his neighborhood or city. This affluent man comes in and he is recognized as affluent and recognized as the center of his town. 
and he is given a chair front and center. Right after that, here comes this poor man. He walks in, and you can tell the same thing about him like you can with the rich man. It's by what he wears that you identify him. This guy is filthy, and he's wearing ragged clothing. And this is James' way of saying that this is not just a poor guy, but this is a poor individual. And it's not that he's just wearing rags, but he's, he's, it, there's filth. And even if you couldn't see him, you would know that he's poor by the way that he smells. And this poor man who lives on the margin of society is, is moved to the margins of the room. Sit on the side, sit down on the floor, to the margins. And what James has depicted happening inside of the church is the scenario that you see happening in the world every, every day. In other words, words James is depicting a scene in the church where the church looks just like the world. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My brothers and sisters, is actually one word, Adelphoi, but brothers and sisters, we are brothers, we're brethren, family, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I don't think that there's any wiggle room in that. Believers must not show favoritism. What is favoritism, by the way? Well, he defines it three verses later. In verse 4, have you not what? Have you not what, church? Discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Five verses later, in James chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but if you show favoritism, you, say it with me, sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. What do you think of when you hear the word discrimination in the context of, uh, of human beings? You know, it's not always about race. Sometimes it's gender-based. Sometimes it's socioeconomic-based. Sometimes it's, it's geographical. I, you know, I, I remember the, the Beverly Hillbillies, and I, I always laugh when I think about the way that Granny Clampett, who was a Southerner, always talked about the Civil War. It was the war between the Americans and the Yankees. What do you think of when you hear the word discrimination? It means to reduce worth of another human being, to reduce meaning of another human being. It is to take away power of another human being. It is to separate, uh, separate yourself from another human being. It means, to f- sort of flip it in a, 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 different, a different side of it, to discriminate is to glorify yourself by de-glorifying, and I don't know if that's a word, we discovered a new word last week, shepherdly, but you get the idea. You glorify yourself by de-glorifying someone else. The words favoritism in verse 1 and show special attention to in verse 3 convey these ideas of seeing only the facade, of regarding only what you see initially, what the first glance, leading to a snap judgment about worth. That's why it's always more comfortable just to be with people that are like us and look like us and smell like us and do the kinds of things that we like to do. It's always easier to do that. But what James says in verse 4 is that it's judgment, it's the judgment of another by your own evil thoughts. And it does not reflect the heart of God. 
And when we show that kind of favoritism, it reveals that in our church family and in our heart that we do not understand the gospel. And that grace has not changed us. You know, back in that Old Testament, there's that great story about Samuel coming to Bethlehem because he's going to anoint the next king of, of Israel. Saul is, you know, has, has, has an epic fail as, as a leader of God's people, and God is going to, to raise up another. Do you remember what God says to Samuel when he's surprised that it's going to be David, the, you know, the ruddy-faced youngest one out in the middle of nowhere guarding sheep that's it's not even, you know, he's sort of forgotten about, and, and finally Jesse has to remember, oh yeah, there's one more, he's out in, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Samuel has gone, and all of, the, all of the sons of Jesse have been paraded in front of him. He said, this one, this one, this one. Oh, he's tall. This one's good looking. This one's tall. And, and, and they're all different. And they're not right for God's next king. And Samuel's wondering, what in the world? When God says to him in verse 7, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As people who, who imitate God, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, as beloved children, we, we look at the heart of people. And it was this same superficial seeing of human beings that led a lot of people to reject Jesus. James, who in chapter 1 tells disciples to look deeply into and intently into the Word of God, saw his half-brother Jesus crucified because people did not look intently into the Word of God who was Jesus. And that's why at one point in the middle of his ministry, after people have heard his teaching and have seen all of the miracles and have, have encountered Jesus and, and not just heard his teaching and, and seen the, the, the miracles and the power that was wrought by him, but actually encountered Jesus and, and saw the kind of heart and the, the, the kind of mind and soul that he had as a human being that was God, has finally come to a point where he says, you, you, you people are judging by by looking at the facade. And in verse 24 of John 7, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Make a decision, but not on these, these presumptions that you have about the Messiah. Look at what I'm doing. I'm, the lame can walk, and, and people that are mute can speak, and the blind are seeing, and people are raised from the dead. And does that not click? Stop making these simple, superficial judgments and make a, a, a right kind of judgment. And the point that James is making is this. People who profess that they belong to God in the world must never treat people like those who have eliminated God from the world. And people who have not looked intently into the Word of God, chapter 1, verse 25, know that this kind of discrimination does not reflect the heart of God. In James chapter 2, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? Jesus himself said from, about spiritual poverty, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the second thing is, not only do we realize that we have to overcome fallen human nature and, and the tendency to separate, but we need to look intently into the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James reminds them that they are a family, that they're brothers and sisters because they are believers. Believers in what? Believers in what? 
believers in what Jesus has accomplished through the gospel. The gospel, the gospel is not that you can be saved. That is, every philosophy, every religion, every scam in the world says you can be saved. Do this, pay this amount of money, accomplish this, and you're going to be saved. Every religion, every scam, every philosophy in the world talks about you can be saved. The gospel is not that you can be saved. The gospel is that you are saved by grace. And that's why I want you to circle that word glorious in your Bible. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word glory is attached to the words Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? It catches the eyes of those who have been giving too much glory to human beings and not factoring in what God has done for them through the gospel. When the apostle John was on the island of Patmos there in the first chapter of Revelation, he got an eyeful of the glorified Christ, and what happened? He fainted, which is kind of weird when you think about it, because he was Jesus' best friend on earth when Jesus was here. It's not like he's never seen him before. But this time, he's overcome by a beauty that was not in him personally but a glory and a beauty that would one day be his because of the Christ. And it humbled him, and he was just so overcome. And when we begin, because that word is planted in us, and it's taking root, and it begins to grow, and we blossom, when we begin to see and to perceive, to get an inkling of just how glorious is the Christ and his love for human beings, it humbles us and it causes our hearts to overflow with love. the gospel, and the glory of Christ. And so when you look at people, you, you just see, hey, there are people out there that have absolutely nothing. I mean, how, the, the first names or even the last names. How many first names of a homeless person do you know? Poor people have nothing. And yet they're made somebody in Christ. Then you got people who seem to have everything that the earth has to offer. That they should realize that their only hope is in Christ. And that frees you up to do the last thing, and we'll close here quickly, is to obey the royal law. Why is it called a royal law? Why is it called a royal law? It's because Jesus, we're being reminded that Jesus is a king, and this is not a suggestion. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. You're doing right. You, you know, God is doing a lot of things in our church family. When, when the gospel comes into the life of somebody and through grace they're saved through faith and what Jesus has accomplished, sins washed away, confession, repentance, Spirit coming to dwell inside of you. You know, the, the complexity, the simple, the simple complexity of salvation and conversion and, and a life that flourishes. He does a lot of things. He's, he's, he's tuning you to a, a spiritual world that, that exists even though you can't see it. He's putting you in a different relationship with His Word you're, you're, you're a son. You're adopted as a son by God because of the gospel. But one of the things that happens when the gospel comes into a crowd like this and people truly believe and, and they get it, 
what God begins to do is to make a people for other people. To make a people for other people. And that is precisely what Christ did with all of those miracles. With all of the resources that He was blessed with in the life that He lived, He was a person for other people. And when, you, when that begins to happen, and, and God's people begin to realize what it is that God is calling them to do, that it's not just this intellectual exercise of the doctrine of, and the theology of forgiveness, but that He's making us a people for other people. The world begins to move from a place of meanness to a place of mercy. And you begin to see more clearly than ever before what it looks like when somebody really fulfills that royal law. And who more so than Christ, right? Who more so than Christ? Christ didn't just become poor, did He? He became nothing. And Christ did not come and at the end even have rags. But was stripped even of that, of His very clothing on the cross in order that we might be clothed with His righteousness. And it was because somebody, because King Jesus was fulfilling the royal law that we even have a hope of heaven. A sense of God as our Father. Because He was loving others as He loved Himself. And it was that love that kept Him on the cross. Not the nails. You've heard me talk about this before. Just a quick reminder. When the nails... It wasn't the presence of Roman soldiers that kept Jesus on the cross. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. There is power that is able to raise the dead. There are 10,000 angels, as we sang right during our communion time together, to remind us that He had power, but it was love that compelled Him and kept Him on that cross, not the nails. Able to transform people who spiritually are like filthy rags, and to children of the King. And when that gets deep down into our hearts and we begin to see that that's who we were and that is who we are today because of the royal law, then we just find ourselves blessing people in the same way that we've been blessed. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe there's some ways that we can minister to you today and pray for you and help you to become a more profound disciple, a more profound imitator of God as a beloved child. Or it may be that today you want to change from contributing to the world being meaner and meaner, and you want to contribute to the world becoming a, more, a place that more clearly recognizes God and doesn't eliminate God, but firmly reestablishes God through your life because of the greatness of His gospel and love that brings you into a relationship with the Creator of the heavens and the earth and all that we know because of the love of His Son on the cross. If that describes you this morning, then we're going to give you a, a minute or two to be able to make your way down to the front and to talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God for His goodness. A common love for each other, a common